0: Again, good morning to everyone. Please turn with me in God's word to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. And follow along closely as I read the first 11 verses. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. You've heard me say it before, most of you anyway, that the book of Romans consists of five major sections. There are subsections, minor sections, but in terms of major, prominent sections, there are five. We are in the midst of the second section. It begins in chapter 3, verse 21. And it concludes in chapter 5, verse 21. And in this section, Paul, simply put, is focusing our attention on the doctrine of justification. And so in chapter 3, verses 21 through 31, he, defend, he, he explains it. He gives a very simple, concise, yet profound explanation, description of the doctrine of justification. And then in chapter 4, the entire chapter, so verses 1 through 25, he defends it. He knows it's going to come under attack. He knows how some of the enemies of the gospel think, so he mounts his defense. And then in chapter 5, the first 11 verses, he celebrates it. Celebrates the doctrine of justification. I want you to notice two details right at the outset in this passage. Detail number one. The very first word in verse one. Therefore, that word means what? It implies what? Simply this. That what Paul is about to say is connected to what he has just Finish saying. And so from chapter 3, verse 21, all the way through to the end of chapter 4, he has explained and defended the doctrine of justification. Now he says, therefore, in other words, I am now going to draw out the implications. I am now going to emphasize the consequences. I am now going to describe for you why this doctrine is so important, so significant, and so relevant to you. That's detail number one. The second detail is this. He uses the phrase, we rejoice, three times. Look at verse two. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. That is instance number one. Verse three, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. That is instance number two. Skip all the way down to verse 11. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Three times. We rejoice, we rejoice, we rejoice. I took a cheap shot at the ESV translation in Adult Sunday School this morning. I'm going to take another one. I don't like the translation. We rejoice. It's too weak. The word has a far weightier significance. We glory, we glory, we exult. It is, says Thomas Watson, exaltation, a ravishment that cannot be compressed. We glory, we glory, we glory. We exalt, we exalt, we exalt. And you put those two details together. Again, detail number one, the first word, therefore. Detail number two, the three instances of this expression, we rejoice, and we now discover exactly what Paul is doing in these verses. He is celebrating what? The consequences of justification. Or he is celebrating, we could put it like this, he is celebrating the benefits of justification. And that is the title for this sermon, The Benefits of the Doctrine of Justification. Now, I don't know if you noticed, but there's something behind me on the screen. Did anyone notice that? There's a picture. Not most of you are just oblivious. No idea. You're so riveted by what I've said so far. There's, let me draw your attention to a picture on the screen behind me. Very interesting picture. Most of us, many of us have at least heard of John Bunyan's book, The Pilgrim's Progress, right? Many of us have read it how many of us knew that there is a second book there are actually two books to the pilgrim's progress book one traces the journey of a man named pilgrim or christian from the city of destruction to the celestial city. And so John Bunyan, a book written all those centuries ago, he depicts the spiritual journey of a Christian through all of the perils and dangers and joys, all the valleys, all the mountains, from conversion all the way to glorification. In the second book, he traces the journey of Christian's wife, Christiana. And at one point in her journey, Christiana enters a house, and it is the house of the interpreter. And in this house, the interpreter shows her a number of things, truths, lessons, principles that she must learn, truths that will serve her well on her journey home to the celestial city. At one point in this house, he leads her into a room. And in this room there are you guessed it two men. One of the men on the floor is holding what was called we don't use the expression anymore a muck rake. MUCK RAKE. A muck rake. And so what was it used for centuries ago? It was used by someone who perhaps was a you know poverty stricken type life and he would use this muck rake to scrape the ground, the dust The muck and the mire in search of sticks or straw. Anything the individual could use to help get them through the cold night. Something like that. And so here's this man, the first man depicted on the ground with his muck rake. And he is fixated on what he is doing. But there's a second man standing just above him. I don't know if you can quite make it out. But what does this man have in his hand? It's actually a golden crown. And you know what he's doing? He's offering to make a trade. He is saying to the man, I will give you this golden crown and you give me your muckrake. But you know what the problem is? The man never looks up. He never looks up. He is so fixated on what he is doing, collecting straw and sticks raking the muck and the mire and the dust, that he is clueless as to what is actually being offered to him. The interpreter states the following to Christiana. "Christiana, This, what you are seeing, this is to let you know that earthly things, when they occupy people's minds, carry their hearts away from God. How many people walk the face of this earth? How many people, friend and kindred, perhaps even how many people in this room gathered here right now, are in this very position, this man with muckrake in hand, on the ground, fixated on earthly things, gathering what can only be described as sticks and straw and all the while absolutely clueless as to the crown that is offered them, namely the benefits of the doctrine of justification. Most people, hear these words please, most people live as though the things of this earth are all that matter. I'll repeat it. Most people, the vast majority of people, countless multitude of people, live as though the things of this earth are all that matter. God offers them membership in his family. He offers them heavenly treasures and eternal pleasures. He offers them the crown of glory that will never fade away. He offers them a renewed universe in which righteousness dwells. He offers them eternity without pain or sorrow or death. He offers them the beatific vision whereby they will behold his glory in Christ Jesus. But most people never, ever look up. Christiana, when she hears this interpretation, she cries. Oh, deliver me from this muckrake. Teresa, you can take that away. The benefits of the doctrine of justification. Do we comprehend? Do we esteem exactly what is given to us? Granted to us, imparted to us. Through this wonderful doctrine. In these verses, 1 through 11, Paul describes seven benefits. Seven benefits flowing from the doctrine of justification. We can't cover all seven today. We're going to look at four today. Three next Sunday. Here's number one. Benefit number one. Unshakable peace unshakable peace. Read again with me the very first verse. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Peace with God. We didn't. I'm speaking to Christians. I'm speaking to believers, those who believe in the Lord Jesus. Uh, We didn't have peace with God before God justified us. We actually struggle with two extremely significant problems. The first was this this God's wrath toward us. Skip back in your Bible, still in the book of Romans. Skip back to chapter 1. And look at what we read there, by way of reminder, it is a terrifying statement. But here it is in black and white, Romans chapter 1 verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed. From heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That word revealed, the word from which we get our word apocalypse. So something that is made visible, something that is made evident, something that is revealed. Notice it is the present tense. The wrath of God is revealed right now. We look around at the history of humanity, we look around at the present condition of our society, we look around at our communities, we do not have to look very far before we see the evidence and the harsh reality of this truth, that the wrath of God is revealed now, right now, from heaven, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. How is it revealed? Paul goes on and explains all the way to through, verse, through to verse 32. It's very simple. God punishes sin with sin. That's it. The wrath of God is revealed right now. How? God punishes sin with sin. I do it with fear and trembling, but I'm going to do it anyway. If you paid any attention to what was going on in Houston this past week, the subpoenas... You hear about that? How couldn't you have heard about that? The subpoenas of pastor's sermons. Part of the homosexual agenda. Okay. We love homosexuals. We Why? Because they're sinners and we love all sinners. At times in, within the Christian community, we look around at our society and we see the rise of homosexuality. And we see just how strident it is now. And the agenda, the militant agenda which is often very apparent and evident all around us. And we conclude to ourselves, well, God's going to punish us. God's going to punish America because of this sin. And we went down this road months ago, and I'm going to go down it again because I want us to be absolutely clear on this. No, homosexuality is God's punishment. The prevalence of that sin, read the text, my friends, read the text. The prevalence of that sin, the militancy, which is now strident behind that sin, and the, the way in which it is being accepted, wider and wider circles, even within so-called evangelicalism, testifies to what? That the wrath of God is now revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. God punishes sin, how? How? With greater sin. He turns us over to the depraved desires of our hearts. We do not get up on our pulpit and start trumpet blasting and pointing the finger here, there, and everywhere because we are part of that mess. We are part of this society. We are part of this culture. With humility, we observe what is going on around us. We lament of the prevalence of sin in our society. Even more, even more disheartening. We weep over the sin in our own midst. And even more disheartening and discouraging and cause for for far greater tears. We weep over the sin in our own lives. And the blatant hypocrisy which is at times far too apparent. And we acknowledge this horrific truth and undeniable reality. That the wrath of God is revealed now. But look at what he says in chapter 2, verse 5. He changes the tense. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself. On the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be Revealed to different tense. He's no longer speaking in the present. He is speaking in the future. He is acknowledging that final judgment is coming. That a day of reckoning is coming when all will stand before the judgment seat of, of God. That was our condition before God justified us. We did not have peace with God. On the contrary, his wrath was toward us. His wrath was focused on us. As Paul makes it clear in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, we were by nature children of wrath. That was part of the problem. The other part of the problem was this. We were hostile toward God. Romans chapter 8, verse 7, the carnal mind, the mind set on the flesh, is at enmity with God. It is hostile toward God. There was a dislike for God. I know that is, a, that is a huge pill for a lot of people to swallow. That is very, that's a very difficult truth for many people to, to, to process and understand. They think to themselves, look, okay, I hear what you just said. And cognitively, I don't have a problem with it. Cognitively, I understand it. But, but here's, here's, here's my problem. I don't feel any hostility toward God. I, I've never had a harsh thought when it comes to God. And uh, this talk of being at enmity with God... This talk of me being at war with God, this talk of me being rebellion with God, well, it just doesn't ring true in my experience. It's just, I, I just, I've never gone a day in my life and thought a bad thought about God. So how dare you stand up there and tell me that, you know, as an unbeliever, I'm actually hostile toward God. The problem is this. The reason most people never realize just how hostile they are to God is for the, it's the following reason. It's because God isn't real to them. It's because God isn't real to them. You know, imagine someone, you know, an individual right here who really dislikes this individual over here. I mean, really, for whatever reason, this person is the object of his or her enmity, hostility. Not a a pleasant thought about this person. That person moves and now lives halfway around the world. All right? Removed from, out of this other person's life that feeling of hostility, it begins to what? Subside. Why? Because they no longer experience that individual. They no longer have to face that individual. Or from that, from that person's perspective, even better. The person who is the object of their hostility actually dies. It's even better. And, th- and this person, who really did not like that person, even gives the eulogy at the funeral. Waxes eloquent, says beautiful things about them. Now, why? Has no problem with them. Why? Because they've been removed. There's no longer anything there to stir the enmity. No longer anything there to stir the hostility. A rattlesnake does not strike at an object that is a mile away. It only strikes at something that nearly treads on it. It only strikes at something that it perceives as coming close. And so men in their natural state, their carnal condition, is, well, I'm not hostile toward God. Yes, you are. The reason you don't feel your hostility is because God isn't real to you. That's Why? If God made Himself real to you, guess what? You'd have nailed Him to the cross. His name was Jesus Christ. And that's why Martin Luther says we carry the nails of Calvary in our pockets. We carry the nails of Calvary in our pockets. That if given the opportunity, a couple of many things happening at the cross. But one of the things in particular happening at the cross and preceding the cross is we see the depth of man's enmity to the Son of God. And in them we see ourselves if we care to look. Well, I don't feel it. We don't feel it because God isn't real to us. Guess what? Someday he will be real to us. And those feelings will come alive. And it will simply be a confirmation of what resides deep within. We struggled with this two-fold problem. God's wrath toward us. Our hostility toward God. But look at what Paul now says in this first verse. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Both of those problems are gone. The wrath of God is? Gone. Our hostility is gone. And that word peace simply means to bind, binding together. Binding together. Knitting together. That which had been separated. How? Look again at the text. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through... There's the how, the means, our Lord Jesus Christ. Through is an interesting little word in the Greek, just simply dia. And notice how many times Paul uses it in this text. Look at the first word in verse 2. Through. Skip all the way down to verse 9, middle of the verse. Much more shall we be saved. It's, it, they translated it by, but it's the same word in the Greek. Through him From the wrath of God. Go into verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. Again, they translated it by, but it's through. Through the death of his son. Go into verse 11. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through whom we have now received reconciliation. That is the great answer to the question, how? How? How was this peace of God established? How was this peace of God effected? How did God, in His infinite wisdom and power, bring together these two warring parties? How did He reconcile Himself to sinners, those who were the object of His wrath? And how did He reconcile sinners to Himself, those who hated them in the pit of their belly? The answer is Christ. Why? Because at Christ... At the cross, Christ bore the enmity. At the cross, he bore the wrath of God. At the cross, he bore the sin of man. Therefore, when we approach God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, our complete legal status changes alters for all time. We now have peace with God in Christ god is our friend and our father in christ god's throne is not a judgment seat but a mercy seat in christ god is not a terrifying judge but a loving father in christ he isn't a condemning god but a pardoning god in christ he isn't a threatening god but an accepting God. In Christ, we no longer have any reason to fear the sting of death, the terror of judgment, the torment of hell, or the wrath of God. Here is why. Christ has swallowed it all, and he has left nothing for us. Our peace with God is such that he now loves his people as if we had never been the object of his wrath. That is benefit number one. Here's benefit number two. Unfettered access. Unfettered. Unchained. You're thinking to yourself, well, why didn't you use the word unchained? Unfettered sounds better. Unfettered access verse 2 through him again through the lord our lord jesus christ we have also so he's moving on to something slightly different here obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and so paul now is now describing another benefit Something we, we have now as the children of God, justified in his sight. Something we have now that we didn't have before. Unfettered access. Before God justified us, we did not have access to him. Romans 3.23 makes it clear that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But now in Christ Jesus, Christ having established peace, We now stand when it comes to our relationship with God and understand this is in the continuous tense in the Greek. Through him we have also obtained by faith into this grace. It's the continuous state. So something that continues in which we stand solid ground in Christ. We no longer stand on ice that suddenly might give way. But we stand on a sure and solid foundation, God's grace to us in Christ Jesus. I shared this illustration with you maybe a month ago. Let me share it with you again. It serves perfectly well. Here it is. Apparently, some time ago, there was a man who wanted to cross the frozen St. Lawrence River. Now, the man had his doubts about whether the ice could hold him. So he decided to test it. By placing his hand firmly upon it, afterwards, having mustered up a modicum of faith, he got down on his knees and began to shuffle, albeit gingerly, across the ice. When he got to the middle of the frozen river, where he was trembling with fear, he heard a noise behind him. When he turned around, he saw a team of horses pulling a carriage and making their way down to the river. Upon reaching the river, the horses, with carriage in tow, didn't stop, didn't even slow down, but bolted right onto the ice and passed him while he remained there on all fours, turning a deep shade of red. In Christ, we do not stand on a thin sheet of ice. In Christ, we stand upon a solid foundation, God's grace to us. We approach God as our reconciled Father. In Christ, oh, hear this phrase, please. In Christ the sinful failings of our best actions aren't scrutinized by a severe judge, but accepted by a loving father. Some of you need to hear that again. In Christ, the sinful failings of our best actions aren't scrutinized by a severe judge, but accepted by a loving father. Oh, that is a precious truth, a glorious truth. Emma's going through her phase right now, drawing pictures. She draws pictures of some of you. The likeness is startling. Emma will draw these pictures. She will grab just a piece of paper and uh, crayon and just scribbles all over this page, a couple dots, hand it to you. Well, that's so-and-so. That's this. How do you reply to that? How do you think I reply to that? I'll do it again, love. That's rubbish. No, start again. Do you think I say that? That doesn't look like... No, no, no. You're, You're delusional, love. That doesn't look like it. How do you think I respond to that? I take it with a big grin and a big smile on my face. Do you understand we are but children when it comes to our Father? We are but children. And we have access into His presence... Because we stand a continuous state upon grace. Let me read it again. In Christ, the sinful failings of our best actions are not scrutinized by a severe judge but accepted by a loving Father. In Christ, we draw near to God with comfort and confidence. In Christ, we pray to God with boldness. In Christ, we cry out to God as children crying out to their Father. In Christ, we enjoy the liberties and privileges of the children of God. That is benefit number two. There's a third benefit, still in verse two unalterable hope. Follow along as I begin reading right from the start of the text so we follow his flow. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Benefit number one. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Benefit number two. And we, here's benefit number three, rejoice. In hope of the glory of God. Unalterable hope. We find in God all we could ever want. All we are lacking is satisfied in God. We live in anticipation of the day in which we will see God. The day in which God will reveal himself to the fullest capacities of our soul. We live in anticipation of the day when we will be like Christ and therefore able to commune with God. There will be nothing to obscure. There will be nothing to confound. There will be nothing to hinder our enjoyment of God. Our knowledge of God will be full and perfect, constant and complete, resulting in unknown delight as we rest finally and fully in him. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. I mean, this hope a life-changing certainty, isn't it? It is a life-changing certainty, isn't it? It is a life-changing certainty which brings stability to our lives. It is a fascinating study. I don't have time to get into it, elaborate on it too much now, but let me at least whet your appetite and point you in this direction. In the New Testament, hope is compared to a couple of things. Extremely significant. The first is in 1 Thessalonians 5. Hope is compared to a helmet. Compared to a helmet. Why? Because the Apostle Paul knows that our hope rests where? In our understanding and comprehension of the promises of God. The Apostle Paul also knows, is painfully aware, undoubtedly, from his own experience, that the enemy will assail us Where? That if the enemy can get the better of us here, he has us right where he wants us. If the enemy can get us, distract us from our hope, if he can remove our attention from our hope, if he can remove our focus, that which absorbs us from the hope of the glory of God to things terrestrial, he has us right where he wants us and we become a sitting duck. And so this hope is the helmet, it is a helmet that provides protection, it provides stability that as we are enraptured with the hope of the glory of God, all that God has promised us, all that awaits us, just read the Beatitudes and there you get a taste of all that he has prepared for those who love him, that as these things occupy the mind, this hope lends stability to life. Secondly, in the New Testament, hope is compared to an anchor. Hebrews 6:19. What purpose does an anchor serve? You know as well as I do. That ship, boat, tossed to and fro by the tempest out in the deep blue sea. What does it do? It casts its anchor. And that anchor holds that ship firm in the blast and in the tempest and in the storm. And Paul, the author of the epistle to the Hebrews, his point is simply this. That is how our hope functions. That is precisely how our hope functions. That in the tempests of life, the gales and the storms and all that batters against us, there is stability. There is something that will hold us firm. And it is this. It is the hope of the glory of God hope is fixed on what will be not on what is hope is fixed on what will be hope is fixed on the return of Christ hope is fixed on the resurrection from the dead hope is fixed on the full and final deliverance from sin hope is fixed on the renovation of the entire cosmos And hope makes this future certainty a present reality, thereby comforting, strengthening us. And hear these words. This hope is immune to every illness, including Ebola. I'm not downplaying the threat of Ebola. I'm not minimizing the fact that we should be concerned as a country. I'm not minimizing the fact that we should take measures to deal with it. That's not my point. My point is this. Some of you need to get off Facebook. That's my point. That's my point. This hope, it's an immunization. It immunizes us even against the threat of illness because our hope is elsewhere. It is immune to every threat. ISIS, ISIL, whatever they're called, the threat of terrorism, any other threat. It is immune to every grief. It is immune to every worry. It is immune to every challenge. It is immune to every loss. The hope of the glory of God. That's the third benefit. Here's benefit number four. Unparalleled joy. He's taken us down that road already using that expression at the end of verse 2. We rejoice, really we glory, we exult in hope of the glory of God. And now he says something in beginning in verse 3, that if you are like me, and I'm guessing you are, I won't put words in your mouth, but I'm going to hazard a guess you are. He says something I would have rathered he skipped over. But here it is. More than that, we exult. We glory in our sufferings. Now that is bizarre. We exult a ravishment that cannot be compressed in our sufferings. What does he mean? Let's begin with what he doesn't mean and let's be very clear. He is not suggesting for one moment that we rejoice because of suffering, on account of suffering, in suffering. He's not suggesting for a moment. That we derive any kind of joy, pleasure, satisfaction from suffering in and of itself. His point is this. We exult in our sufferings. Why? Because we comprehend in the light of the doctrine of justification. We comprehend, of all people, we understand that suffering simply begins a chain reaction. I used to do this as a kid dominoes. I didn't really play much dominoes as a kid, but something I did like to do is put those dominoes straight up one after the other, and you make a little design or something, then you knock the first one over and they all come falling down. You ever seen those videos of, I mean, sometimes people take this pretty seriously. We'll have competitions, entire gymnasium floor. It takes them months to set up tens of thousands of dominoes, a couple of hours for all these things to fall down and elaborate pictures. This is the idea here. That he, he sets up four dominoes It's a rather pathetic little train, but there it is, four dominoes. And it ignites this chain reaction suffering. And so the first domino that falls in this chain reaction right there in verse 3 is this. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. And so here's the first domino in this chain reaction, knowing, because we know this, suffering produces endurance. What does he mean by endurance? The word simply means this, single-mindedness. That's much better. I think it's much more helpful. Single mindedness. Therefore, his point is this look, this is what suffering accomplishes in God's people, those who are justified in His sight. Suffering produces single mindedness. In other words, suffering causes them to focus. I know we don't want to hear it, but there it is. It causes them to focus. Focus on what? It causes them to focus. Enabling them to distinguish, that is differentiate, between what is really important and what isn't. You know it's true, don't you? As you now reflect on suffering in your own life, you know the truth of this reality. That suffering accomplished this, this quickly, unless we are totally carnally minded. Suffering has this great design, this great purpose in the life of the believer. It causes this focus, this narrowing of attention, and all of a sudden bringing to clarity, look, this is important. That isn't. And it creates this single-mindedness, what Paul calls endurance. But then it leads in this chain reaction to a second domino. We move into verse 4, and endurance, here it is number 2, produces... Character. What does he mean? Simply, in that word character, he's referring to a confidence, not a self confidence, but a confidence that arises over time from experience. It's called maturity. It's called maturity. Forgive the illustration if you don't like it, but think in terms of sports, you think in terms of championships. And you think in terms of a championship coming up, I guess we're there at baseball, aren't we? And you've got a couple teams in the championship. And let's say you have a team there who has been there before. A team that has won it all. A team, therefore, that is playoff hardened. A team we would call them that is seasoned. A team that is experienced. What a tremendous advantage over a team players that have never been there that have never been through that kind of pressure, That have never been through that kind of adversity, never been through that kind of stress. You see where I'm going with this? We we would give that other team a tremendous advantage simply on the basis of experience, on the basis of maturity. That's the idea here that Paul is driving at. He says, Look, okay, chain reaction, domino number one. This suffering produces endurance, it causes us to be very single minded, very focused. This new focus, single mindedness, endurance, it produces character, maturity, a confidence that comes from having been tested, having been through it, and then the chain reaction continues, a third domino falls down into the, still in the fourth verse, that this kind of character, this kind of maturity, this kind of confidence, which comes from the experience of having been tried and tested and persevered, what does it produce? It produces hope. Why does it produce hope? It produces hope because simply I'm now able to reason to myself, look, God brought me through that, God sustained me through that. God worked on me through that. God proved himself to be faithful through that. That enlarges my hope. Why? Because if God did that, I have every confidence he will do precisely what he has promised. Because he brought me through that. Because he lifted me up through that. Because he afflicted me in that particular instance, and he taught me, and he worked on me, and it was painful, and goodbye, and good riddance to it. I'm glad it's gone. But I see how he brought me through that now, looking back. And it testifies to his faithfulness. And because he is faithful, I have every confidence, looking forward, that all those things he has promised me, this hope of the glory of God, my hope is enlarged, it is quickened, it is enlivened. Why? Because of my experience. I've now experienced it in reality. And so my confidence grows as to what awaits me in the future. But there's a final domino that falls. Fifth verse. Hope does not put us to shame. In other words, hope does not disappoint. Hope doesn't leave us stranded. Why? Now it's tricky. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now we can easily misunderstand that verse. That verse has easily been misunderstood because like many people do with many verses is they lift it out of the context. And I've heard people appeal to this verse and say, well, look, God pours his love into my heart. through the Holy Spirit has been given to me. And so I'm sitting around waiting for this warm fuzzy feeling. That's that's what that means, isn't it? That I'm going to have a warm fuzzy feeling that the holy spirit is going to give me just a nice warm fuzzy just this big celestial hug and I will feel the love of god. That's ripping a verse out of its context. It has a context. Hope does not put us to shame. Hope does not disappoint. It is part of the chain reaction. Why? Because as we experience suffering, it leads to this endurance, single-mindedness. We're able to focus and differentiate between what's important and unimportant. And as we do that and grow experienced with that, it produces character, maturity, a confidence that arises from experience and testing and trials. And as that happens, our hope is enlarged even more as we fixate on those promises which God has given to us. And here's a wonderful reality. The Spirit of God... Whom God has given to us. Who is within us. As we fixate on these promises. Promises as they are revealed and declared in the word of God. Through the word of God and the ministration of these promises to us. He heightens our awareness, therefore, of just how much God loves us. Now go all the way back to the beginning. Therefore, we rejoice in our suffering we rejoice because in our suffering and all that we experience in it from endurance to character to hope we are experiencing as the word of god is implanted within us and as the promises of god become real to us we are experiencing firsthand the love of god which has been poured out in our hearts And this is a cause for unparalleled joy, for benefits. I've shared this illustration with you before, Kathmandu, Nepal. I was there seven or eight years ago, teaching at a Bible college. Perspective is everything, isn't it? Paul's giving us some beautiful perspective here. Perspective is everything. And one evening sat at the hotel where I was staying outside, enjoying my supper, and there were the Himalayas. Well, I'd never seen anything like that in my life. Glorious, majestic, beautiful, sunset behind them, the colors, un, just unimaginable. And there they were, they were in all their grandeur and the snow on the mountains and the sunset and it set and the night sky grew dark and then all those stars came out, right? There were a lot of stars, that's not bad. But how did those stars appear in comparison to the Himalayas I'd just seen? Small, kind of small. Kind of tiny. Kind of what? Insignificant. Now here's the thing, hypothetically speaking. If I could travel to the stars, how would the Himalayas look from that perspective? I would no longer even be able to see them. Far too many of us, we have our eyes fixed on the Himalayas. we got our little muckrake. And we're looking down. And just looking down. And we will not look up. We will not look up. Down we look, and in come the straws and the sticks. And scripture exhorts us to do what? To look up. Look to God and understand this great truth that we are justified by God and the benefits that flow from justification, unshakable peace, unfettered access, unalterable hope and unparalleled joy. I had read something just quickly from John Piper a long time ago. He penned, these aren't his exact words, but something to this effect. He said, rejoicing and suffering. Rejoicing in suffering proclaims the wondrous truth that Christ is more valuable to us than all that life can give and all that death can take. I will repeat it. Rejoicing and suffering proclaims the wondrous truth that Christ is more valuable to us than all that life can give and all that death can take. You know you think of the context of this passage, and you think in your mind's eye of what Paul has just said at the end of chapter four concerning Abraham. Abraham believed God and God credited to him as righteousness. Abraham did not weaken in faith, but Abraham grew strong, thereby glorifying God. That as Abraham was fixated his faith on God, even in the midst of circumstances, which testified to the very opposite, which, which seemed uh, impossible obstacles to overcome in the fulfillment of God's promise, Abraham would not be moved. And therefore he glorified God. Why? Because his faith testified to what? Just how precious God was in Abraham's estimation. Rejoicing in suffering, hoping in suffering, believing in suffering, proclaims the wondrous truth that Christ is more valuable to us than all that life can give and all that death can take. Our Father, as we conclude this morning, we pray your blessing upon your word. We pray that you would accompany all that has been proclaimed, and by your spirit, you would apply it deep within. We confess, our Father, there are some lessons we've considered that are difficult to fully grasp and certainly even more difficult to put into practice. So We look to you for help. We look to you for assistance. We look to you by your spirit to be working in us and helping us to take to heart these great, precious realities. We do praise you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for what he has done. We thank you for that life lived on behalf of his people. We thank you for that death, that blood shed again on behalf of his people. And we thank you that he is installed at your right hand, where he lives to make eternal intercession on behalf of his people. Receive our worship again this day. Receive our praise and thanksgiving as we offer it to you in Christ's matchless name. Amen.